welcome back to another episode of WHRA, What the Heck is Resilience Anyway? I'm Connor Barnes, PhD student at the School of Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I'm Julie Fowler, master's student also here at UNL. And today we have another one of our interview episodes. This makes number three, Julie. It does, with a bit of a COVID break in between, but we are back. Uh, And today we have Assistant Professor Dr. Diane Uden of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln School of Natural Resources and Department of Agronomy and Horticulture. Dr. Uden is a resilient spatial scientist who studies how spatial properties of systems and their disturbances influence system resilience in the Great Plains, including in the agricultural working landscapes sort of sector. So thank you for being with us. Yes, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, we're very excited. Well, we're honored to have you. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so... Dr. Uden, this is a podcast that's all about resilience and especially about ecological resilience. We've talked previously on this podcast about the difference between ecological resilience and engineering resilience, other different types of resilience and how they're used in a variety of different disciplines. And what we do is we go through, we focus on ecological resilience concepts and we break down these different concepts, look at the theory behind each of them and provide examples about what resilience looks like in the real world. And we couldn't help but notice that a lot of your research focuses on the spatial side of resilience. Uh, For example, tracking changes in the environment, uh, looking at an ecosystem's landscape level resilience sort of process here. So uh, could you give our listeners sort of a brief recap of what your research interests are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, as, as you mentioned, I'm a resilience spatial scientist. So that means I think about systems and, and I think about social ecological systems and, and landscape systems, particularly here in the Great Plains. And I think about the things that make those systems resilient. And, and on the spatial science side, I'm bringing in, you know, thinking about how do we, how do we conceptualize resilience in space? What is the what is the role of, of spatial characteristics of, of systems and of disturbances they experience? How, how do those spatial properties affect the resilience of systems? You know, thinking about things like connectivity and, and context and, um, and scale, things like that sure. that are very, um, you know, spatial in nature, spatial processes, um, that sort of thing, uh, you know, there are certain disturbances when we talk about disturbances that systems experience. Disturbances have spatial order and spatial temporal order. Many do at least. And so we try to track that order and determine what the implications are for mm-hmm. for systems that are in the path of that disturbance, so to speak. Cool. So you're talking about elements like scale and uh, we've just we've just discussed uh, looking at, for example, landscapes and these these larger scales that are a lot bigger than a, a plot of land, for example, that a traditional, for example, grad student program might look like. So what tools do you use to look at these giant landscape level scales to, to assess these changes that you mentioned? Well, yeah, and that's a great question. And the, and the scale element, of course, is, is a great question. Um, I, I do focus on those those broader areas, you know, more something like a watershed. Uh, I spend most of my time doing that. But I, you know, when I teach about resilience and spatial resilience and, and landscape systems, I make a special point to note that, you know, the definition of what a landscape is, is very scale dependent. Mm-hmm. I actually, I always show this, uh, this series of images that are all taken of the same location, but at substantially different scales. And the first image is like a, um, a, a spider on a leaf. And from the perspective of that spider, that leaf is really a landscape. It's a heterogeneous area where, where it interacts with its environment. Mm-hmm. And then the next image is like the patch that that leaf is in. Um, it's actually a, a research plot. Um, on a university property. And then the next scale, we zoom out even further to what really we were just talking about more like a, an aerial image of, 
of that landscape where you see different mm-hmm. types of land cover. You see forest and roads and that sort of thing. So with that disclaimer about the definition of landscape, depending on scale, in my view, I would say I you know, spend most of my time looking at remotely sensed data, you know, data con- collected by satellites or, mm-hmm. or planes, um, where you really get a, a bird's eye view of the landscape. And, and so I, that's the sort of data I like to use to, to study land cover change and, and resilience in landscape systems. And, and the tools I use tend to be, you know, use a lot of GIS, spatial analyses, statistical analyses. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that image of the spider on the leaf, because in our scale uh, and heterogeneity episode, I actually discussed sort of when I first realized that, that what scale was, that scale existed. Uh, in my middle school science hallway, they had a series of pictures on the wall where there was, you know, an apple and then they zoom out and it's an apple on a blanket. And then they zoom out and it's a there's a couple there having a picnic and they zoom out more and you see the whole park and you zoom out more, you see the whole city. <laughs> and they had this running up and down this whole hallway in my middle school. And wow. that was sort of when I first learned about scale uh, which I thought was a really novel way to do that for, for you know, what were we, 12-year-olds? It was, <laughs> yeah, and it stuck with me all this time. That is impressive. Yeah. And I would have loved to have that sort of thing on the walls in my, in my middle school. Yeah, yeah, and it went all the way from Apple size up to the universe. One of those little, like, you wow. are here dots of where the Earth is in the, in the Milky Way. So just pretty cool. And that sort of leads to another question, which is, you know, if, if that's when I first learned it what spatial scale is, how did you first learn about resilience and get involved with that work? And then sort of follow up question, how did you decide to focus on the spatial aspect of that? You know, because resilience can be approached from so many different angles. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would say that actually the spatial came first for Mm me. Mm -hmm. I was a, I was a geography major in my undergrad and that's where I got introduced to GIS and and spatial analysis and, and mapping. And, you know, I had a professor who really encouraged us to always think spatially. And I didn't even, you know, at the time, I think that was a little bit of a nebulous concept. I mean, what does it mean to think spatially? And he just meant about, about the world. But, but I did, you know, carry that with me. And, and when I came to grad school, well, I actually um, did graduate work here at UNL. And I was a student of Craig Allen, so it didn't mm-hmm. take me long to get introduced to resilience theory. And, you know, I had been continuing along this path of really branching out from my geography background, taking GIS classes, taking stats classes. And so it was kind of a natural progression, which, you know, at that time, resilience, spatial resilience, I mean, it's still gaining traction, but it was very new. Um, just a couple of papers had been written about it, really oh, wow. just a handful of papers that even mentioned it. And um, Graham Cumming, uh, who is a you know famous ecologist and resilience scientist, had written a book, Spatial Resilience in Social Ecological Systems. I believe that's the, the name of it. And, and, and I got that book about the time it was brand new and, and read it and read it and read it. Um, multiple times, um, even as I've been developing courses now on resilience thinking and and uh, spatial aspects of resilience, I, I read that book again. And I think it's finally starting to make sense to me, which is which is good. <laughs> but it's it's a very good book. That's awesome. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, um, we'll try and list that in our, our references for interested viewers if they or interested yes. listeners. Right? Yeah. And, and it is, if any are UNL students, it is available. The PDF is available through the UNL library system. Oh, amazing. So that's helpful to know. Yeah, very nice. So Dan, you just mentioned uh, that you've been putting together some classes with resilience concepts embedded. And here on the podcast, of course, we're part of the Council for Resilience Education. We're very interested in, in taking these resilience concepts and uh, putting them out there to to students and to the general public in an accessible format so that people can learn about these concepts. And uh, of course, you as a professor are ma- mainly teaching in an undergraduate and graduate sort of classroom setting. And 
we're just curious, you know, what challenges have you found in trying to convey these sorts of concepts and materials? And have you had any breakthroughs or anything you think is particularly helpful? Any advice that you might have for, for us or other people who are trying to communicate these ideas that you found? Well, I think, first of all, that <laughs> I view I view the council as a as a resource and and one I hope to use in the future as I continue to, you know, to pursue this question of of how to teach resilience and and how to teach spatial resilience. And um, so <laughs> so, I, you know, in some ways, I think we're doing the same we're doing the same thing where you know, asking yourself, what is the most fundamental idea that we need to start with when we're trying to teach resilience? And, mm. and of course, that could depend somewhat on the class it's embedded in. And, and I have several of those, um, you know, Great Plains Ecosystems course, which, uh, you know, Connor, you're, of course, familiar <laughs> with. And, and that, of course, has some consideration of ecosystems as complex systems um, that, of course, are great environments for studying and thinking about ecological resilience. But I'm also developing, I developed uh, a brand new course, actually, this, this past January, and it, more, it engaged resilience a little bit more head-on. It was called Resilience Thinking in Landscape Systems. And so you know, when I ask myself that question of where do we start here? So far, I've, I've really started with the systems. I've, I've started with a very basic definition of what is a system? And, and we talk about a system, you know, in, in just the most fundamental sense as a, a collection of interacting components that are interdependent and together they, through their interactions, they form, they form a whole. Mm -hmm. But but from there we go into to complex systems as a special class of systems and, and complex adaptive systems, which some people use synonymously. Mm -hmm. but, but I think that really lays the foundation for, for talking about resilience. And, and if you were in a class where, you know, your focus was landscape systems, you can then kind of diverge into um, landscapes. And, and in fact, in the, um, Graham Cummings book I was talking about, he, he devotes a, really a chapter to that, to this question of are landscapes complex systems? Can we think of landscapes as complex systems? Because if we can, there are a whole lot of things that, that people have discovered in complexity theory that then could be applied to, to landscapes. Um, subdisciplines like landscape ecology. And then of course the inverse is also true that we should be able to take things we've and, and tools and um, frameworks for, for thinking about landscapes and have those contribute to the study of complex systems and the understanding of complex systems. So, right. but, but I think, you know, you could go into to landscapes, you could go into more of a social ecological system focus from that point. And, and that really gets you close to, to resilience, you know, because you start talking about things like feedbacks and emergent properties and scale and um, self-organization and all of those um, really hallmarks of, of complexity, mm -hmm. as, as Graham Cumming puts it, that lay the foundation for thinking about resilience. Sure. Yeah. There's yeah. A, a lot of content out there. You can go yeah, very down... <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that for a long time of what is the, where do you start? Right. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you might some, and I'd actually be interested to hear, hear your thoughts in, in developing your materials. You know, do you start with scaled or do you start with systems or do you start with uh, regimes and, and mm -hmm. alternative states? Those all, I think that you can make a case for, for starting in any of those places. And, you know, and I'm a very, I would say foundational thinker, I, you know, I have to realize the big picture and build on that. So for me, so far, this is just what has made the most sense of, of moving from systems to complex systems to the characteristics of complex systems, maybe the particular class of system you're thinking about. And then from there, 
into resilience because no matter right. what system you're talking about, you're going to be if you're talking about a complex system. You're going to be talking about feedbacks and um, self-organization and those those sort of things. Yeah, I think in our work, we've we've often started in the scale and heterogeneity. Um, mm. And that's, I think, where we originally sort of started in some of our education work. But I really see the argument for starting at a systems level. Because I think if you don't understand systems and complex adaptive systems, you're mi- I think you'll miss a lot of the resilience concepts. And so I think there's a pretty big argument to be made for that. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of a cool way to start off a class or a unit or something is like I show these videos of like these amazing complex systems like ant colonies right. that do you know display this incredible emergent behavior like building bridges with their bodies or you know fire ants do that they create rafts and then they float <laughs> as a giant raft and um, you, but you can also talk about uh, the human brain which is something that we are just studying like crazy and have plenty more to discover about to say to say the least uh you can talk about markets or um you know the internet all those are kind of amazing examples of complex systems and and so it's, I, I just think it's kind of a a cool way to to start out a class mm-hmm. like that big picture wow of of how amazing the you know the systems all around us are and i yeah it's sort of that awe factor you know how you know i think that's especially in environmental education that's such a great way to approach something right is look how beautiful look how wonderful look how just fascinating yeah. this is rather than starting at more of the mechanical here's the definition of heterogeneity i think can really bring students in yeah although we'll see we'll see how that goes <laughs> yeah <that's, laughs> all of this I'm is interested. an experiment right yes <laughs> Yes, it is. And I'm, you know, I'm at the, I, that's what I keep telling myself is uh, I'm uh, view myself as at the start of a career. And right. so I've got a few years to, to uh, smooth things out and tinker, but I'm enjoying it, which yeah. is a good sign, I think. <laughs> Definitely. And so you've also worked uh, pretty closely with the Twidwell lab as well during your career. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I worked as a, a postdoc. Right. for uh, Dirac for uh, s- several years. Right. And so I know that that lab has a lot of sort of collaboration work with like local landowners and ranchers and that sort of local knowledge. So in my mind, that's sort of maybe not the other side of education, but the other side of like interdisciplinary collaborative work is sort of working with, you know, the people who are applying science out in the real world. So what have been maybe what are some of the challenges that you face in this sort of like applied science and how do you work with sort of landowners and, you know, this sort of other side of science that's going on? Right. Well, um, that has been a very interesting and, and a great journey, but I, I would say that to have that level of engagement and an impact really takes a team approach. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly the model there um it was almost like i was on like the in the research and development wing you know where um we're trying to to use date you know different data sources and new analyses to to be able to say something straightforward about resilience um and and systems that mean something to people and Mm -hmm. that is is useful to them, um, sure. which I'll say I, you know, had much more of a role in in the development of, of the products mm-hmm. than I did in, you know, going out and, and delivering that to, to people. Although I did, you know, get a chance to do some of that and it was very good for me to see that side of it. But I Definitely. spent a lot of time behind the screen. Which is, <laughs> That's which the life of, life of a spatial scientist, I think. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you get too far away from the GIS, uh, things start to get, you know, a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> do you, I guess, as you move forward with your work, though, how do you see sort of the language of resilience playing a role in translating these findings to, you know, the ranchers or the landowners or to people who might use it? What, what do you think about this sort of like use of the specific language of resilience? Well, 
there is certainly some specific language there. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes there's a lack of specific language that makes things a little bit blurry. I'm sure you've perhaps even touched on this before, but that Definitely. resilience is, is a buzzword and, <laughs> and you see it everywhere. And, and we all kind of generally know what that means or, or we think we know what it means, but when you really get down to definitions, you know, the jargon takes you to different places, I guess, Definitely. <laughs> as, as it, you know, that's, uh, it, you know, the use of jargon is that it can communicate a lot of information very quickly, but then it, it's not as useful for communication. I, I would say that we've had a, a fair degree, you know, that's something we always think about, but yet I, I think we've also had success in using existing terminology mm-hmm. to, to convey the ideas. Um, you know, something in, in research we did related to and are continuing to do related to, you know, those those products and 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 working with with stakeholders very closely is is mapping the boundaries of of spatial regimes or spatial regime shifts. And even when I say that, it's probably like, uh, what what do you mean spatial regime shifts? That's, right. Um, you know, but a lot of people are more familiar with the language of of state transitions, you know, and, and so that a, you know, that vegetation, for example, can exist in a state like a grassland state or a woodland state. And so what we were doing was not mapping the states, but mapping the transitions between them or, you know, really simply put, we're mapping boundaries between things. And and that's something that almost everybody gets. And, and it's a little more straightforward that this is some sort of a boundary right. that we're mapping. And and that's something that is really at the heart of, of spatial resilience theory is when you're thinking spatially, you have to decide what's inside and what's outside the system at a given scale. So then that kind of leads you to thinking about boundaries and, and how can we see boundaries through a resilience lens? How do we see, you know, you could call them boundaries or you could call them state transitions or you could call them um, spatial regime, spatial regime shifts. I, I think that those terms are, you know, they, they mean a very specific thing thing in my mind, but, um, you know, maybe are, are appropriate in different audiences just because mm-hmm. that's the terminology they deal with more frequently. Definitely. I think that's really important to keep in mind. Otherwise, you can do all the great science in the world, but if it's not understood by the people who need to use it, you know, what value does it have in the end? Right. Yeah, we want to make it uh, useful. That's that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Eden, you were discussing landscape transitions, and one way you've utilized your spatial imaging background and that bird's eye view that we discussed earlier on the podcast here was uh, is to assess large scale landscape transitions and regime and regime shifts, which is a concept that we've discussed on the podcast before. And in fact, in one of your papers, spatial imaging and screening for regime shifts, you compared using spatial imaging technology for ecosystem health to medical screening for human health. Just on their face, they seem like pretty dissimilar concepts, right? Looking at an ecosystem versus a a human body, right? So how would you say these two are similar? Right. Well, yeah, that was, um, you know, I think if you you think in the medical sense, you have screening and you have diagnostic testing. And the whole idea of screening is to, to detect undesirable change, whether, you know, that's a disease or something. The idea with screening is to detect it before you have signs or symptoms of that disease. And so again, the idea there is is advanced warning because we know that the earlier you detect those sort of things and, and the earlier you act, oftentimes the the more successful you can be in reversing that change, that undesirable change in its early stages mm-hmm. or, or preventing it entirely. And so that's really the core of the idea of screening. But then, you know, diagnostic testing is is more about confirming the presence or absence of, you know, a specific disease or, or condition. And but oftentimes that's after you already have symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea there is, is really that those 
um, as we know, those two things work well together. If we can screen for things um, and then and then diagnose them as early as possible, that's what we want. And and really, when we're talking about um, ecosystems, the same idea holds. When you have a a system that experiences a regime shift, and when that regime shift is operating in space, you know it often spreads. And I, as I mentioned at the beginning, it spreads and it moves with some sort of spatial order. And so we can use um, remote sensing data to see that change coming and to prepare for it. And we can we can take in information not just from a location, um, but from its surroundings. So in that sense, the location ex- itself might not be experiencing a regime shift. You know, if we uh, try to give an example, if we think about in the Great Plains, a, a grassland, perennial grassland ecosystem. And, and if it's experiencing or, or at risk of experiencing a regime shift to something like a woodland, for example, through, through woody plant encroachment, if we can pull information in from surrounding locations and we can track that information over time, we see that even though change isn't occurring in a particular place, we see change start to occur in its surroundings. And so that's a form of advanced warning or early warning. And that's really the, where the screening comes in, is that by, mm-hmm. by looking at the emergence and, and tracking um, change at different scales, we can, and then comparing those scales, we can see change before it arrives. And, Very and cool. that's really that's really the, where the screening comes in. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's a. But I'll also add that then it's important to, you know, we, we get a generalized signal of of something going on mm-hmm. in the ecosystem. There's some sort of um, anomaly there, and so we really just get this signal of of a potential regime shift. And we you know look if it's persistent as it's you know, continuing to stay there over time. We look at if it's moving, is it stationary or is it non-stationary? But then really to diagnose it, we we need to rely on other sources of information. And, and in many cases, that can be local expert knowledge, people who, um, <laughs> you know, know the landscape. It can be uh, other sources of, of monitoring data. So, you know, together, this approach to screening, you know, detecting these signals of change, and then um, diagnosis, you know, confirming what exactly is going on. The idea is, is that those things can contribute to how we monitor ecosystems. Right. Yeah, I wanted to add that in there. Well, that's great. It seems to be very much a a pivot to emphasizing prevention rather than response once a, a system has been invaded already, right? Uh, whether that's a, a grassland ecosystem or, or the human body and you know, some kind of a cancer, for example, uh, in both yeah. cases. Yeah, you know, it is, it is kind of a mental flip from waiting till a problem occurs and mm-hmm. then going, you know, and trying to restore it. You know, although those things are, are worthwhile and, and good in many cases, an alternative approach is to also focus on on where change hasn't occurred yet. Where do we have large, intact ecosystems that, you know, that we don't want to experience regime shifts? And so we can also prioritize prevention efforts there, um, you know, and build out from kind of those cores. And that's something, you know, Dirac has really been um, influential in, in developing that approach of, you know, protecting the core and then moving out from there into, you know, into other areas. Um, otherwise, you know, you, the risk of, of always just following the problem is that, that, that you're always just chasing the problem. And, um, and it's much more difficult to, to reverse the longer it goes on. Yeah, so yeah, and, that, that speaks to the prevention. Yeah, and in that case, you're operating when you're just sort of chasing it, you're not even operating from a place of sort of full spatial knowledge of the extent of the problem. It's, you know, becomes more world, word of mouth almost at that point. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's really true is you may not really even be perceiving mm-hmm. those patterns, um, which is understandable because <laughs> uh, 
we see the world, we tend to see the world at a particular scale. Absolutely. And, um, and that can make, make scene change over decades difficult, for example. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really amazing. And so I think another element of your research that Connor and I really like is your willingness to apply your skills to other fields of interest besides you know, just sort of these agricultural working landscapes, you know, in Nebraska, um, particularly as we, with the podcast with CRE, always try to drive home um, that resilience is in everything, every topic, every system, every field of study. Um, and so I know that you recently published a piece on adaptive fuel procurement in 19th century Great Plains landscapes, which is much more of a history paper than I think Connor and I are, are used to you know, neither one of us is, is a historian, and I don't think we haven't spoken about on the podcast resilience being part of. Not a topic history. we've really covered. <laughs> Not really. You know, we, we've done some urban land, you know, urban ecology stuff. We've done plenty of ecology. We've done a little bit of law and governance, but we really haven't done that. And so, you know, how did you move into the sort of this topic and how do you feel about applying resilience maybe to a field where it hasn't been applied that much before? Uh, right. Well, um, how much time do we have? Is, uh, no, no, I, I can be, uh, I can be brief. That paper has a very interesting history, mm -hmm. and um, no pun intended, and and it's it has a fairly long history. You know, I, I think I it just finally came out in print, but that paper has existed in some form for I'll say five or six years. Oh wow! Um, oh, yes. Which partially that's because historical research is very hard work and very time consuming mm -hmm. work, you know, going into the archives at the university and, and sitting there and reading these like, um, I don't know how hundred plus year old books. Mm -hmm. And, and some of them, they literally sit there and watch you read it. Um, Oh, that would make me really uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and you, you have like a, piece of paper and notes and I, I think you even wear gloves or something you know with some of them um you know so some of these are are fairly rare um pieces and 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 so you just spend a lot of time doing things like that or reading historical journals which is very interesting but uh there are a lot of those and it takes a lot of time but but yeah that to get more to the resilience question I think that emerged I took a a, a course um, from David Wishart, who is a uh, historical geographer mm. here uh, in, the, in the geography department here at UNL. And, and he's written a number of influential books. And, and one of the um, well-known one, uh, well ones was published in the mid-90s, I believe. And, and it's, called, um, it's called An Unspeakable Sadness, the the dispossession of the Nebraska Indians, oh. and um, and so it's really about the the peoples who were inhabiting what is now Nebraska during the years of of Euro American resettlement of the area, and, and it's kind of their their story. And we came across some you know interesting material in that class, and I, I think I remember the thing that sparked my interest was the fact that um, horse, horses were fed cottonwood bark. So cottonwood is our state tree here mm -hmm. in Nebraska, and it, uh, it grows along streams and, and historically was one of the, the only trees that grew in the plains, um, especially once you got further west than even here in Lincoln, where you know that, that's, that's a lot of what grew, um, and, and particularly along streams. But but this question of of energy was a huge one, and, and really could think of it as fuel, and and it was a major um, transformations that were occurring at the time of of settlement because of things like the reintroduction of of the horse to North America. You know, the Spanish reintroduced the horse in you know mm -hmm. I think the 16th century, and it spread through the plains. And that really unleashed this energetic transformation in in Native American societies of the plains, it, you know. And so that was a real um, 
you know, it was a change in technology and it was, but at the same time, it was, it was a wave of colonization, you know, that was coming through. And so these people were rapidly, you know, when you think of scale, rapidly adapting to, um, you know, these waves of colonization, the same, you know, a similar time you had. Um, so the horses were coming in from the south um, and moved through the plains and the gun, the British introduced through the north. And so it was coming through the plains as well. And so you had these waves, you know, coming in opposite directions and kind of transforming life on the plains, um, the way people traveled, the way they hunted, um, and, you know, and even the way they interacted with, with energy, having a horse put you one degree closer to the sun, you know, as this ultimate source of, of energy, um, you know, previously used dogs to, you know, to, to carry things and, um, but, but, you know, dogs ate meat. And mm -hmm. so you were one degree further away from, from the sun. And so, you know, you had the horse coming in, you had the gun coming in, that was changing all sorts of things. Then you had a disease coming through as another wave and eventually you had people. And so it was this, um, you know, time of transformation in, in the plains. And, you know, when we talk about resilience, we talk about the resilience of what to what we had all sorts of of what's there we had you know the resilience of the plains bison herds or of uh woodlands in the region and of, of uh native american peoples and of um you know immigrating euro-americans and so they were all kind of you know adapting and they were sharing technology and there's all this um you know, activity, and a lot of it was focused around energy. How do we get fuel to do things like uh, power our, our horse herds or, um, or cook or, or heat or, um, you know, planes locomotives were burning wood until I believe 1870. Steamboats were, were burning wood, uh, but wood was mm -hmm. rare. And so you had people using like, um, uh, buffalo chips, which is bison dung, uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, for cooking. And, and you had, um, you had pemmican production in the Northern Great Plains, which is that's bison meat and, and fat basically mixed together and dried. It's very, you know, just a step down from lard, this very dense fuel. Well, that was a traditional food among, you know, the black feet and the Cree and, um, you know, several other groups on, you know, even north of the uh, 49th parallel, so so into present-day Canada, but the the fur trade adopted that as a fuel, and they uh, you know groups of Native Americans and um, uh, Euro Americans, and then um, basically these multi-ethnic hunting bands would go out together, and they were thoroughly tied into a global market to the fur trade, and they um, you know in resilience we talk about tightness of feedbacks. And how if you don't have a tight feedback, um, you know, that's not as resilient in theory. Well, that was a great example of that because they basically hunted the northern bison herd to to extinction, to near extinction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they hunted it rapidly until the collapse. And and that was probably be in part due to, you know, the, the global fur trade wasn't really affected by the decrease of the bison until it was gone and and then all of a sudden it was just gone and they had to s adapt and switch to a new fuel source so uh, there are all sorts of examples like that and so throughout writing this paper my you know mind was just humming with these um you know resilience theory thinking about these things and um particularly around the question of energy and, and i could go on but i better uh <laughs> let you guys uh, redirect me here. No, I love this. This is, I think it's so neat to hear about resilience in this particular context. And I mean, the history of the Great Plains is certainly not something that I know an immense amount about, or mostly in terms of ecology is what I know about it. And so I love this. And I wonder if you have seen a lot of other work connecting resilience to related topics or, or was this really a, a novel study on y'all's part? You know, I have seen I have seen resilience and panarchy used in um, in some historical analyses. I mm -hmm. believe it was um, Paul and Hazel 
Delcourt, who, you know, I'm most familiar with like looking at like oak pollen, you know, um, samples throughout North America. They did an analysis they, where they used panarchy to describe um, civilizations in the Americas oh, interesting. In, in the pre-settlement era. Yeah, and they really, they really went into panarchy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. that's just one example. So, you know, I've seen a few, a few here and there, but uh, I would say that a lot of environmental history, you know, environmental history has done a very good job of addressing the energy question, and particularly in, in the context of, of colonization in, in many cases. And so in a lot of ways, this paper wasn't, wasn't new, but we did put, we did really try to put a, you know, kind of social ecological right. spin on it, which, um, you know, sometimes in other disciplines, people just assume that, you know, you don't mm -hmm. even have to say so, so social ecological system. They say, well, of course it's a social ecological <laughs> system. Um, but you know, in ecology, we, we do, <laughs> yeah, for sure. we have our history kind of forces us to make that, um, distinction, uh, or clarification at least for now. But yeah, it's, uh, and of course I'm not an expert on this. My background is much more landscape ecology and, and spatial science, but I'm very interested in, in the history. And, and so I saw a lot of, you know, just the idea of even equilibrium mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, these landscapes were really, you know, we assume they were stable when in the 1800s, when people were coming through and writing down their observations, but there's a lot of evidence that would lead us to question that, that we would instead conclude that the plains were rapidly transforming at this time, that, that you had um, massive horse herds that hadn't been there a century earlier, and, and they were influencing the landscape. And um, so all sorts of ecological implications of that. But it really was a, um, some brilliant adaptations in, in the energe energetic sense that took place um, in the plains. And this is all again, prior to the, really prior to the arrival of coal, which mm -hmm. was the arrival of the railroad in the 18, uh, you know, 1890s, I think 1880s, 1890s for much of the plains, you know, these different forms of herbaceous biomass and woody biomass, people were really creative in, in their strategies for for using those for, for fuel. But ultimately, they uh, just imported denser fuels, <laughs> as we know. <laughs> That's great. I really look forward to seeing what research you do next, sort of in this, in this vein. Yeah, well, I don't know about that because, like I said, I don't know what, not that I'm not interested in it, but I, <laughs> after I published a paper, I said, I don't know when I will ever have time. Yeah, fair. <laughs> You'd have to start a whole other team just on. The... Yeah. Yeah. I need a student uh, yeah. for that or something. <laughs> I have a new respect for history research. Yes, I, I do too. Very super interesting stuff. I couldn't help but think when I was reading through some of this material of potential parallels between the the fur trade and what we see in in more modern contexts with for example uh, the fish trade uh, where we see um, heavily fished stocks and production continues mostly mostly due to technological innovation um, right up until the the stock population collapses and you know I'm mostly speculating on what parallels you could find there but it does seem like it's yeah very, very yeah and I, and I think about the bison in general that, um, you know, in the Northern Plains, you had commercial hunting for pemmican. And, and in the Southern Plains, you had commercial hunting for, for hides, you know, for bison robes. And, mm -hmm. and, and there were other things mixed in there. But really, you know, that's been a question. There are all sorts of questions. How many bison were there? People spent a lot of time mm -hmm. answering that question. Was it, was it hundreds of millions? Was it tens of millions? And, you know, the, you can pretty safely say, several tens of millions or at least tens of millions of, of bison on the plains. Um, but, you know, they're the largest North American land mammal, you know, they don't necessarily recover from, you know, populations dec population decline super quickly. Um, but, but you had a variety of things come together there. You had them experiencing pressure from, from commercial hunting. You still in many cases had traditional hunting, going on you had um you know the railroad coming through 
you had um, you had some harsh winters and droughts, and and really all of those things came together to, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know what it was that in the resilient sense that dealt the final blow, but both herds experienced, you know, the word collapse is consistently used. The herd collapsed until it was just a few scattered, you know, individuals, you know, in, in the, certainly thousands, you know, was sure. all that were left. It's really interesting. So there were, yeah, there were definitely human influences, but there were also environmental kind of shocks potentially to the, to the populations um, in different parts of the plains. Yeah, but, but for... I, I'm not a bison historian. There are, <laughs> there are certainly people who are. <laughs> well, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Yudin, for your discussions on all this very fascinating uh, research that you've done, mm -hmm. as well as the the teaching experience you've had. Um, we like to, to wrap up our interviews just by, by asking the interviewee what sort of work, whether that's research or teaching or, or what have you, are you currently really excited about, uh, really engaged in? And, and that's a great question. There are so many things that I feel like I could answer that on, on both sides. And <laughs> my time, my time is just the, <laughs> yeah. the limiting factor right now. I'm hoping to to catch up a little bit. I, I've been really excited on the teaching side. I've been telling people this. Teaching across departments is a challenge, but I think a, a fun challenge and an opportunity. And I feel like I've really been, you know, welcomed into that space. And the subject material on, on systems and resilience has really been met with a lot of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to, of course, I'm excited for the research. And, and like I said, I have things I could talk about there. But at the moment, I'm very, <laughs> very absorbed in, in teaching, especially the first go round with all these classes. Yeah. And and I've been encouraged by the response I've gotten from, you know, from faculty and, and from students um, as they begin to to engage with this this material. And, and it's something I hope to continue building moving forward so you know at the moment that's the thing that's probably on my mind the most sure yeah i'm really excited to see what you do more with bringing in more of these resilience sort of focus classes i wish i had had more of those my undergrad and i think that's going to be really exciting to see more of that well fortunately like i said the, the council has now produced these <laughs> materials which i am going to i know draw on moving forward so well we uh, really appreciate that we're flying yes. yeah we're really fine we're we sort of you know we saw a need and we tried to make these but we're it's nice to maybe have a few of them used which is yeah the, the ultimate compliment absolutely <laughs> nice i think maybe we have one more question which is so typically we end our sort of content episodes connor and i with resilience in the news which basically we just take a news article that caught our eye that we thought in some way, even if it didn't explicitly mention resilience or alternative stable states or panarchy or what have you, sort of exemplified it. You know, we can see we can read between the lines and sort of see where resilience might be in this piece of news. Has there been any examples, you know, uh, be it weather or politics or, or something silly that maybe you've seen in your sort of, you know, browsing in the news where you see some resilience that our that our listeners could could get another real world example? Well, maybe a bit ironically, uh, this week with our with our historic uh, cold snap, mm -hmm. polar plunge, uh, or polar vortex, um, whatever we call it, that was an energetic question. Oh yeah. And, oh, and good it reminded point. me of many ways of these um, these adaptations that the ways people have adapted to to deal with that issue over time and so i thought a lot about the the resilience of the electrical grid as i'm sure mm -hmm. a lot of people did this week whether whether or not they knew um knew they were doing that but you know the just the idea of a rolling blackout um <laughs> my understanding is that the rolling blackout is to prevent the collapse of of the system which would be Absolutely. completely catastrophic. And we saw those here and uh, 
So yeah, I'll just finish on an energy <laughs> note there. Uh, you know, that was one of the conclusions of this paper is that all these creative adaptations and technology really, really in the end, they didn't solve this. You know, environmental historians talk about this ultimate human challenge of mm -hmm. getting more energy right. and and how things like the use of, of fossil fuels were very transformative in that sense because they were so energetically dense. But but yet, you know, none of those things have really resolved that in the resilience and sustainability sense. How and of course that's a question that's right at the center of so many issues today is is the issue of, of energy. So it's really an old an old question and even today we're not we're not fully insulated from no we don't quite have it figured out shocks, yeah to our to our system and certainly the sustainability question is is still ongoing yeah this past week's record low temperatures definitely had me thinking about sort of the same thing and, and the resilience just of our how much resilience certain pockets of our society have in the face of sort of increased perturbations from climate events, you know, yeah. be, it, be it man, be it driven by man or just regular perturbations. Well, yeah, you know, and, and um, something that I wish I had was some redundancy in my heating system because oh, yeah. I, mm -hmm. you know, things like uh, a wood burning stove or, uh, <laughs> you know, some alternative source of energy that's a resilience issue is, is having redundancy. It's not always the most efficient thing, right. but, um, but the cold snap did not wipe out, uh, the ability of wood to combust. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. At a very small scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's a great example and extremely timely. <laughs> well, Thank you so much for speaking with us. We've loved this yes, interview. Thank and, you so much. And we really appreciate you taking the time to to have an, a COVID. I'm sure you're spending all of your time on Zoom these days. So another yeah. one more Zoom meeting. <laughs> That's okay. I, the pleasure was uh, all mine for sure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very wow. much. Well, you've and been listening to uh, WHRA. What the heck is resilience anyway? Take care, everybody. We'll see you <laughs> next time.